0: what time is it you wonder well it's time for drinks with tony on kpcr lp santa cruz 101.9 fm tony Duchesne here welcome to episode 145 with my guest marilyn peterson house and we discuss her debut novel her debut memoir half of a Whole. Now, first off, Marilyn is an inspiration as far as because this is her first book and she's 79 years old. And as you'll hear in the interview, she really started taking uh, writing seriously and taking workshops when she was 67 years old, which I love. And it's just hilarious because I'll get students in my classes for novel or screenwriting. And usually when they're in their late 20s, they're just like, oh, I'm past my prime. I, I hope I can get this published. And you're never too old to start writing. And that's what I love about this. On July 14th at 6 p.m., I'm teaching a free creative writing workshop at the Los Angeles Public Library via Zoom. That is free, and this might be our last Zoom workshop. Oh, it's so nice to say that. As the libraries start to open. And I can't wait to do it again in person in Los Feliz. Uh, And that might be in August or September. So while you still can, join us online, especially if you're out of town. Uh, Go to LAPL.org and search for July 14th Creative Writing Workshop. That's happening at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And now, fair warning. In this interview, the audio slips up a bit during the first two minutes. Don't worry. It'll sound like you're on acid. And her replies to my questions, slow down. Let me assure you, you're not on acid. Unless you are on acid, then continue to take deep breaths and have a wonderful psychedelic time.
1: Hi, I'm Marilyn Peterson-House, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony.
0: Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Marilyn Peterson-House. She's the author of Half of a Whole, My Fight for a separate life. Marilyn, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm happy to be on your show, Tony, it's a pleasure.
0: And thank you. What is it like, what is it like as a debut novelist? You're 79 now, but when this comes out, you'll be 80, right?
1: Well, it came out a couple of weeks ago, so um, I got it out before I was 80. Oh, wow.
0: How does that feel?
1: (laughs) It feels wonderful. I've never published anything. I worked, uh, you know, close to a decade on this book, and uh, I had I I retired from my business career uh, at when I was sixty-seven, and then I took some writing classes—not not formal classes, but workshops—and I read. About, I had to learn the craft because I wanted to write. And then I started writing this book uh, probably when I was 70. And then about two years ago, I got an agent and then a publisher. And now I have a book. It's amazing. Did, it kind of,
0: go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, I said it kind of gives the people hope, you know, that you can start something when you're 70.
0: Uh, yes, I firmly believe that. And when, when you when you started the journey and taking the writing classes. When you were first taking the writing classes, did you think the book will be finished sooner and the publishing would happen a lot quicker?
1: Actually, um, when I started writing, I was writing anecdotal, anecdotal stories about growing up on the farm. And I did that for about three years. And twin brother is in everything you write. So why don't you write that story? Well, I had no idea how to write a book. So I thought, well, I could continue writing little anecdotal stories, but I really wanna write this book. And so um, I just jumped in with both feet and started writing the book. And I kind of learned as I wrote and I decided to tell the story. I would just tell the story from beginning to end, and then I would worry about structure and how to put it all together uh, later. So that's what I did. I just started writing and writing and writing.
0: That's a fantastic approach. I think people don't realize you just write the book, let it be as it is, and then you kind of can go in and do the the scalpel and chopping up and
1: yes exactly and and when i got i wrote the whole story and then i worked with an editor i found had a friend who knew someone and so she worked with me and helped me pick out the themes and helped me figure out you know what i needed more of what i needed to get rid of and so she worked with me um for quite a while and uh and that um that worked well and then when we had kind of used up uh the Uh, what what she could do for me because by now she was so familiar with the book herself then I went I got another editor who who also teaches workshops and she helped me sculpt it a bit and so I had some very good help I knew I knew I couldn't do it without some some help from somebody who actually knew how to write but it was fun I really really love writing and uh I, you know, for every page that ended up in my book, at least 20 ended up not being used, but, um, you know, that's, I didn't mind because I love to write.
0: Well, that's a good ratio because I think we have to, the, the, we have to write all those 20 pages that we don't use for the one page in order to get that one page.
1: True, true. And then, uh, and then of course, when I got the publisher, Post Hill Press, then they had a copy editor and a proofreader. And so I went, I got to go through it. I, you know, somebody said, and I think it's true, a book is never done, you just abandon it. (laughs) You decide at some point, I'm not going to work on this anymore. And I had kind of gotten to that point. And so when the copy editor went through it, he found very little um, that he wanted me to change. I actually made a lot more changes than he suggested at that point. So, so it was, I thought it was a wonderful process. Um, I like the writing part.
0: Now you really, I mean, you really get personal and you, you really dig yes. into your life. So yes. I, I liking the writing part of that is pretty impressive. Cause I, were you in therapy while you were writing this book? I would think I would have to be in therapy like three days a week if I was <laughs>
1: writing. Actually- Actually, when my twin brother had his psychotic break, when we were 45 years old, um, he, you know, I was the one who had to call the police because um, he was uh, hallucinating, his hallucinating were driving his actions and he became very uh, scary in a way. And so the police had to literally drag him out of my, we had we had uh, gone to my mother's condominium for a holiday visit, had to literally drag him out. He, He smashed out the plate glass door with his stocking feet. That's how his hallucinations were so strong. And so um, I had to call call the police and get him into the hospital. When I got back to, that was in Minnesota, you know, where we grew up. When I got back to Massachusetts, um, I, you know, I was obsessed with what had happened with my brother and what, what had gone wrong, you know, what was going on. And that's when I went into therapy. I went into therapy, and my my therapist said, I think very wisely, he said, you know, your brother had a breakdown that everyone could see, loud and visual. He said, you're having a breakdown too, but yours is quiet, can only be seen, you know, in his office. So I was in therapy three and a half years. And what happened was, I, I didn't know, I had just a reservoir of grief over my twin. We had been so close while we were growing up. We were, you know, uh, spent all our time together until we started school. And so I had lost that brother that I had been so attached with, such deep bonds with him. And when in therapy, my therapist helped me open up that, that repressed grief and helped me work my way through all that sorrow. But um, that was, so that ended um, when we were like 49 years old, 50 years old. I didn't start writing until I was 67.
0: Oh my! You didn't start writing till you were sixty-seven. Oh, right. I love that so much. I <laughs> can't believe I have students coming to my class. They're like, you know, I just I, I really want to write, but I'm twenty-nine and I'm I'm past my prime. I want to <laughs> beat them up. They need to be beaten up for thinking like that.
1: <laughs> nuts. You know, I have friends who say um, I was going to go back to school, but I'll be you know forty-eight by the time I finish. And I said, well, how old will you be if you don't go to school? you'll still be 48, one way you'll have a degree and the other way you won't.
0: <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. No, there's, so. and, and I think especially, you know, when people approach writing, you know, in their 60s, even I, I've talked to people who started in their 70s, it's, it's not, they're not coming with such a blank canvas. There's, there's coming with a lot of wisdom of life and then moving into the craft. I think there's, we, we've been around. it's yes so we know it's and then we inherently know how to tell stories because we're telling stories all the time in general about our friends and even you know situations so it there's it's already the muscles kind of there just kind of steer it in that direction
1: right right and i this story you know i had lived i had lived this story for 70 years And I wanted to write the story. I I had this burning desire to write it. I had to learn craft in order to do it. I didn't want to just slop it down on a page. I wanted it to be well-written and I wanted to be able to write it well. And so um, I think you can start writing whenever, I don't think it's age limited because exactly what you say, you have a life experience and you have some wisdom. And I had done a huge amount of processing of all that had happened, you know, to to untangle a life and to make sense out of it. That's that's a lifetime process. And so um, uh, I think when you pick up a pen when you're seventy, um, you should also work on the craft. You know, you need to learn how, how to write if you haven't been re- writing before.
0: It's a, uh, I mean, there like there is a um, there is there is a clock. If you want to be a lingerie model, you know, we, we can be past our prime in that. If I tried to go model Speedos <laughs> right now, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't get the gig. I'd get the gig if it was for a joke. <laughs> but, <laughs> Send but me know. the
1: pictures. Send me the pictures so <laughs> yeah. you know what I think.
0: Yeah. But at the same <laughs> time, it's just like. But on the writing level, there, there, there's no, there's no time, there's no time limit. Yeah. Writing, writing takes us, it takes us to the end.
1: You know, it's a very interesting thing. I thought that when I tried to get an agent, that my age was going to be an issue. I'm already halfway into my second book, so it's not like I'm going to be just write one book, but. Uh, all the way through the process, no one mentioned my age. Now I know there's ageism, and you're not allowed to talk about age, but they didn't, they seemed only to care about the book. Was the book, did they think the book had merit? Did they think the book would be interesting? Did they think the book would sell? Only when um, uh, not too long ago, when we were putting together publicity materials did uh, uh, Kim, I think she's the one who, who arranged with you, say something about, I, I felt like she was saying, well, you know, like, how old are you? And of course, you can figure it out for my birthday. And I said, you know, I'm not embarrassed by my age. If if my age is something that will help other people be willing to write or, or be courageous enough to start writing, uh, that's fine with me. I'm happy to be here. I'm, eight, I'm going to be 80 and I'm still here. My twin brother died when he was 67, you know, so... Um, I'm not, I'm proud to have gotten this far. And it is,
0: yeah, that, uh, that's beautifully said. You made me lose my thought. It was so wonderfully said. <laughs> it's. Um,
1: I'm glad it happens to people who aren't gonna be 80.
0: Oh, uh, no, I'm gonna be 80,
1: bar. hopefully. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> not this year. <laughs> that's my hope. I had a colonoscopy
0: <laughs> last week, it came back clean. So I think I'm gonna be all right
1: uh yeah well you get a you get a 10 year free pass don't you no now it's five year
0: i i I said i'll see you in 10 years and they said no it's five years now sir and i was like one i'm not sir young lady and two no i didn't say that i was just five years i gotta do this again in five years all right it's invasive once every five years whatever yeah well when you get
1: to be when you get to be 75, they start doing a cost value judgment. And so once you're 75, they don't want to, yeah, they, you know, it's, I think it's a societal thing. They think, you know, there aren't enough people uh, and you aren't going to live long enough. So we'll just stop doing them. Except my doctor said, look, you are a young 75 and we're going to, we're going to continue doing them. So,
0: yeah, but yes. I would be. That's what. That's what will scare me more than getting a colonoscopy <laughs> is if they did. You know what? Cost based on this, <laughs> but we'll just go with. If you get something, you're gonna die anyway, and I'm. That. That's gonna be the day that I'm gonna freak out.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Don't worry. I so, freaked out. I freaked out much many times before this. I'm really good at freaking <laughs> out. But um. Well, don't freak out like my brother did. <laughs> oh my <God. laughs> I mean, when you, that that's got to be hard to see, um, because yeah. when when my dad had a nervous breakdown when I when he was 37, and I was mm. uh, I was 19 at the time, and mm. then I turned 37 and I was in therapy and I was really scared I was going to have a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. It's I, I was I didn't it, it scared the shit out of me beyond belief. Yeah. I don't know if mm-hmm. you had that same feeling when you see your twin do something where you're just going oh, my God, is that going to happen to me?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And I've always been, I'd like to say I have a little bit, he, of course, was severely bipolar, bipolar disorder. And I always think, you know, I have um, sort of highs and lows, but not peaks, you know? And so um, my children, however, were there. They observed this whole event. They were terrified. And they looked at me and they said, mom, is that going to happen to you? Is that going to happen to you? they were terrified. Um, you know, we were 45 and most people are, di- that was when he was diagnosed. You know, most people are diagnosed in their early twenties. And so that was shocking when we went to the hospital and had to be interviewed. Um, they, they, they were really amazed. Now, I think he had, when you, when you look back, when I look back, which I do in my book, I could see signs, early signs, but he did such a good job of, of um, repressing it and denying it. He never accepted the fact he had bipolar disorder ever. He And uh, parts of that uh, annoyed me because he'd stopped taking his medications. And then he'd become manic and then he would, that mania would, oh, he'd get so tightly wound and then he'd have another psychotic break. He was hospitalized, I think seven times for manic breaks um, from the time he was 40, uh, 45 till he died at 67. And each one of those is very hard on you, you know? So there is, I think it's um, some, some uh, detrimental impact on you. So I think the more you have, the more likely you're gonna have more, um, but he was, uh, uh, so I would get annoyed because I'd go visit him in the hospital, He'd acu- he accused me of labeling him, that I had called the police and therefore he got labeled. So he would get put into a psychiatric ward for the same, if he were someone else, they wouldn't do it. You know, they'd consider it normal behavior. Now, of course that wasn't real. And he was would go into a rage over my role in that. But then I knew that when he got back on his medications and, um, and even when I went to visit him in, in the psychiatric ward, he, he was glad to see me. You know, our bonds were there, our, our bonds were underneath all of that. But, but I, later in his life, I realized that he had worked so hard to live a normal life. He did not want to have to live under the onus of having a mental illness. He fought a valiant fight, he worked uh, he ended up with a part time job. He worked right up until he drove himself to the hospital uh, when he died a week later. Wow. He had a remarkable courage, I think.
0: And, and how do you feel? Have your children read the book?
1: Uh, yes, yes. They I, love the book.
0: Do they? Well, did it, yeah. What was it like when you, um, when you said, okay, kids, here's the book? How did you feel when it, when it was in their hands and you didn't know what the reaction was yet?
1: Um, I, I wasn't worried about them. I was worried about my brother's daughter, my twin oh, brother's daughter. Mm-hmm. I was worried about my sister. I was worried about my younger brother. Um, those are the people I was worried about because my children play a very small role in the books. The only thing the only um, thing one of them said was, Mom, you didn't make his breakdown nearly as bad as it was, you know, how ter- how terrified we were. And I had originally put, you know, a lot more of that um, um, chaos into the chapter, but my editor said, you know, too much is not, nece- more is not necessarily better. So we honed it down. But um, I was worried mostly about my brother's daughter because um, this is her father I'm writing about. And she, her, her mother protected her from much of his illness. So she hadn't experienced very much of it. And then I'm going back and writing about him, you know, the early days and some of the idiosyncrasies and some of the things, you know. And so I um, went and talked to her several times in the course of my writing the book. And she had a wonderful comment. She said, I'd said something like, you know, um, some people would, would um, disagree with the way I present this and the way I write it. And she said, well, then they should write their own book. <laughs> oh. So that, that um, made me feel very good. But she she took, I gave her earlier versions of it. She skimmed them, she scanned one, but wasn't ready to read it. Um, but, um, you know, and I think she's now read the final version. I think she comes out really looking good because she was. She was um, uh, amazing. I didn't get to know her until my brother was near death because wow. he kept her from us. And I found out that she's just a wonderful, mature, um quiet, um, but um very smart young woman. And I I really love her.
0: I there's the it's amazing what resilience in high stress mm-hmm. situations can do. It can it can yes. really sh- make people shine. Um yes. and, uh, and what what a how how did he keep her away from you? What was
1: Oh, he, um, he refused to attend any family gatherings. He, oh, okay. refused to go, he refused to go out to my mother's condominium after his breakdown for at least 10 years. And he refused to answer her letters. He refused to take her calls. Wow. Um, when I went to, uh, the only reason I got, so I couldn't see him at any family events, but what I would do was, at, at first I realized if I told them I was coming and to visit him, he'd go off his medications. And then I'd have to end up visiting him in a psychiatric ward. So I stopped that and I'd call him up and i say, Marvin, we're, we're gonna arrive in Minneapolis two days from now. Would you meet us for lunch? So he would. So that's how I could see him, but see his daughter wasn't with him at that point. So I had seen very little of her um, because I saw him under those kinds of circumstances where it was just him and me uh, and my husband. Uh, So I didn't get to know Christy and she's quite a bit younger than our children, Um, but um, she's she's great and my children love her. She was there when he had his breakdown. She was in the condominium. She was seven years old, I believe. And um, but our children took her back in a bedroom and locked the door. So um, so she wouldn't have to watch this whole process of getting him to the hospital.
0: Does she remember it?
1: No, you know, I asked her that. I asked her, I said, "What do you remember?" I said, "Do you remember that whole event?" Um, because he got a hold of her and started running down to the elevator because he was—I don't know where he's going—but his car was in the basement, and we were not going to have him with her in a car while he was hallucinating. Um, she, she, and so she doesn't remember that. The only thing she remembered was when. Um, when we were asleep, my husband and I were sleeping in the guest room in the condominium and our daughter came down and pounded on our door and said, you know, something, you know, Marvin is really um, um, making us scared. You know, he was. Uh, and so they, they, she brought Christy down. So Christy stayed in the bedroom with one our other daughter. And while we tried to get things under control, she remembers jumping on the bed. <laughs> <laughs> we told him, do anything you want to do, but don't come up. She remembers jumping on the bed. That's just about the only thing she remembers.
0: (laughs) You know, what a blessing it is that it happened at that time when everyone was there because it could have happened when he was only with her in a different situation. Yes,
1: I've always wondered about, see, he wasn't even, we were visiting my mother. We didn't even know he was going to be there and she hadn't actually invited him. And I wonder, I've always wondered if he knew I would get him the help he needed that he had relied on me. I don't know if that's true or I'm imagining it, but I've always wondered, why did he have a psychotic break when I was there? I mean, I was only there maybe two weeks a year and yet he came out. His wife went to visit her family, so she wasn't there. So it was just him and his daughter. And it's a strange thing, but we were very closely connected. And um, and I I think there might've been some way that he trusted me, relied on me to get him the help he needed.
0: So that's interesting. Even if he didn't actually realize it, there was probably something very subconscious that knew yes, that knew, so. that, knew yeah. that, that it was that would it yeah. be a better, it would be a better situation, even though it was still rough.
1: Yeah, we read each other so closely, you know, we we were very late to talk. Um, and my mother said we we had a language between us, not verbal but physical. We understood each other and we didn't use language. We were by ourselves so much that we didn't hear adult language that much. And I think we both knew how to read each other. I could read him from across a room. I knew instantly when he stepped into a room, I had a unique, we had a unique communication. And I think that might've been part of his thought was that he knew I would understand that this required intervention. Um, Or maybe he was able to finally, lose control, you know, knowing I was there to help him.
0: Wow. It's so interesting. It's like, even though it's dangerous, it's all, there's a safety to it.
1: Yeah. I time. think I was the safety net. He knew that I would, you know, that I wouldn't let the worst happen. I don't know. This is all surmising yeah. because of course we don't know. I, But I've I, always wondered.
0: Yeah. I think, I think with tragedy, there's always a re uh, replaying and trying to get the exactly what happened yes. in our heads, you know, it's just yes. like, Oh, yes. wait a second, maybe this, 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 and it's, um, yes. yes. you know, and sometimes yes. I don't, sometimes I feel like, and this drives me nuts, but like all of a sudden I, I have like a lot of, I have all of a sudden all this anxiety about a certain thing in my life or whatever that happened. And it's just mm-hmm. like, my body's finally telling me that I can, that I, that I need to work on this now. And I'm just like, really, can't we just push it down a little more?
1: Right. Right. Well, um, one of the things that happened in my therapy was, um, after three and a half years, twice a week for three and a half years, I, you know, I wondered why I had to go twice a week. And he said too much material (laughs) (laughs) for once a week, too much material. Um, But at the end he said, well, you know, we never were able to get through to your issues with your mother. And I thought to myself, why? You know, I hadn't worried about that. I hadn't really thought about it. And I remembered when he had asked me about my mother, you know, that she was critical and that um, I I felt kind of numb. I just felt sort of numbness about that. But he said, "Um, you know, you're strong enough to do the work on your own now. But he said, look for your mother in your dreams. And so 15 years later, this um, repressed rage I had at my mother finally broke through and I confronted her um, over a series of, she, we did everything mostly by letters and some by telephone. And that then opened up that remaining um, um, ocean of anger, you know, some anger that I had harbored under this, this uh, wall of insulation. Beneath that wall of insulation, where I felt nothing, I felt everything. And so once that opened up, then I could confront my mother about, you know, her uh, favoritism of my twin. And, and you know, I came to understand why she did what she did. But one of the stories I relate in the book, um, when when we were uh, when I was 11 months old, I walked across the room without any help. She kept me in a walker for three more months, so I wouldn't walk before my twin walked, because she felt he was the firstborn son. He was the one who was supposed to be the leader of the family. He was supposed to take over the farm. And anything I accomplished, she thought diminished him. So from the time we were that small, all my accomplishments, she had to smash me down to build him up. And what I didn't realize was that you know I had, I didn't realize it at the time, but I had built up this cumulative rage. Um, And so once, once I vented that, um, uh, then uh, you know I I felt um, whole. I felt um, cleansed. I felt uh, you know I had and I and I, I I sort of resurrected my relationship with her and with my I twin. I had always, yeah that's and with my twin.
0: I you how she took it because I wanted to see. I mean that could that could go the other way. It could be and she never talked to me again. You know, okay. but it yes. sounded. It brought it about yeah. you
1: together? Um, she, yes, she, um, well, this was a series of letters over, I don't know how long and some telephone calls and, um, and, what happened was she denied everything. She denied everything that I said. She, she, had, you know, she said that she treated everybody the same, treated everybody the same. And then she wrote a letter to my sister, which my sister was fed up with this whole thing. She said, you know, she's been critical of you all your life. I'm done listening to it. And then I begged her to show me the letter. And in that letter, she stated that she uh, thought more of my twin than she thought of me because I thought so much of myself. So I read that to her. I quoted her her actual words, at which point she could not deny what she had said. So for a few moments, or briefly, um, she backed down and said, that was a terrible thing to say. That was a terrible thing to say. And then she actually wrote a letter and said, you know, sometimes an old woman says the wrong writes the wrong things but it it was small and it was very focused on an incident you know but for me it was enough by then i had opened up the rage i had confronted her she had admitted it just for a little bit and i didn't need anything more from her i realized that what i had wanted from her she was either not able or unwilling to give me you know i wanted her to champion me i wanted her to stop criticizing me i wanted her to give me her blessings you know all of that. And I realized that that was not going to happen. I couldn't look to her for what she couldn't give me. And so i recognized where she was coming from and what her issues were, you know, and, uh, and somehow within that, all I found the capable, I I just forgave her. And then I wanted to have this warm relationship with her. Sadly, she started slipping into dementia a few years after that. So, um, you know, I never got to have the relationship with her, except when she had dementia, she turned into a very sweet, lovable person. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> yeah, so, yes. That had could nice. go the other way, too. Yeah, yeah, it could. So, it ended up
0: very nicely. But if you think about her point of view, I mean, you're 11 months old, tramps and around the place, walking on your own before your twin. I get that. No, I don't get yeah. that. It's stupid. <laughs>
1: Well, you get it. You get it. If, if your husband, my father, has his heart set on this twin being, you know, the shining star and she wanted to make him into the, the person my dad wanted him to be. And so she took it as her mission, you know, to, um, to, to produce the son he wanted. And she worked very hard at my, mo- I loved my mother. She worked incredibly hard uh, raising the family and, a farm, you know. They say a farmer works hard. A farmer's wife works just as hard and just as long hours. Um, and she did all of that. Um, but and also, if you have a child who, um, you know, at that at that point, they they compared twins. We know now that's not a good thing to do. It's bad for both of them. Yeah. Um, and so, and and of course, we were so isolated out there um, that. She, she tried to do her best. Um, and of course it didn't work out well for my twin and it didn't work out well for me. And at the same time, you were in a fundamentalist uh, religion, right?
0: What was, yes. what was the religion called?
1: It was uh, evangelical religion. It was called the Swedish Evangelical Mission Covenant Church. <laughs> and it was um, my-, my um, Actually that's a predison. really
0: cool name. that's a cool name for a punk band, I think.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Swedish Evangelical Mission Covenant Church. They shortened it up, so now it's the uh, Evangelical Covenant Church. They they gradually dropped the Swedish and started having English services, and then they dropped the mission because it wasn't really a mission. It was part of a denomination, and uh, it's still evangelical, but at that time, it was... um, it was a fundamentalist uh, version of evangelical thinking. So um, of, of the evangelical faith. So it was a literal interpretation of the Bible. And, um, and we weren't allowed to dance. We weren't allowed to go to movies. We weren't, we weren't supposed to wear makeup. Uh, we couldn't play cards. So you know, it was defined very much by this, this uh, stalwart life. And you had to be a born again Christian. If you weren't a born again Christian, you were doomed. You were doomed. So I was a born again Christian uh, under those, um, those wet um, dogma uh, until I was off into college. And uh, I went to a, a conservative Lutheran school, but they were far more liberal in their thinking and as far as strictures. So um, that had a lot to do with how my twin uh, and I were treated because um, uh, biblically, um, uh, you know, my, my brother, um, when he had his breakdown, mental ill or any signs of mental illness, uh, it just could not be accepted. I remember one time when he was home in his early twenties on a leave from the army, he was in the army for two, he dropped out of school. My mother sent him to the same college I went to. I thought I was gonna escape from responsibility. That didn't work too well, but then he dropped out and tried farming with my dad, which was a disaster. They just didn't get along. And then he went into the army. And um, when he came home from the army, he visited us on the East Coast. By then I lived on the East Coast. And uh, he was showing signs. That was when I began to wonder if there was something not quite right. And, and that same leave, he went and stayed with my parents. And the minister from their church, after he had been there for, um, came out um, a few times at church. Um, came out and told my mother that he thought Marvin should see a doctor. When my mother told me the story decades later, I said, well, why did he do that? And she said, well, anybody could see he was nervous. And then she said, I told my sister Elsie about it. About it and she said that minister should be taken out and shot. Wow. That was, yeah, because he had, intim- he had implied that my brother had mental problems that was the reaction to, um, you know, mental illness was, was like being possessed by demons in biblical yeah. times. And they didn't trust therapists because therapists who weren't born again Christians could lead you astray. So the, the whole stigma of mental illness was hugely affected by the, the outlook they had, their biblical outlook. I, mean, I grew
0: up Jehovah's Witness. So when my dad yes. had a service breakdown, the elders and he was an elder for nine years they came after him trying to find out what his secret sin was so they they knew they and my uncle had killed himself the same year and my sister attempted suicide so the elders were like what they were coming at my dad after he had this nervous breakdown it was in the hospital and they're like what have you done to lose jehovah's blessing and they were on him like crazy and i was felt so bad because I touched a girl's boobs so I, I was I was so distraught about this I was finally like writing in my journals I was like do I kill myself or do I confess I was in such a you know a 19 year old quandary so I confessed that I touched a girl's boobs and the five elders that were there all went That's why Jehovah took his Holy Spirit from your family. And oh my gosh. And so I get that a lot. You know, I understand that on such a visceral level. Where when they said that, I was kind of like, wow, because you really, you know, it's like they hadn't really seen the inner workings of just how bad it was. But for them to blame all of that on touching a, you know, on being in love with a girl and going, you know, and touching her chest when we were kissing was was the reason why all of that happened um that's that's that's, how they came to get that's how they came up with it and went okay now we get it so it's
1: it's crazy that's phenomenally awful that's phenomenally awful to have something like that happen to a 19 year old it's amazing you're you know well and healthy really
0: oh well that's
1: (laughs) that and a lot of therapy (laughs) yeah yeah
0: yeah it's um yeah a lot lots of therapy and lots it's
1: Well, I I, I, certainly, I mean, to put that guilt on you and that responsibility on you and to accuse you of causing all that disruption in your family, that's a horrible thing to do to anyone, much less a 19 year old boy.
0: Yeah. And I fully believe it wasn't like I didn't believe I was fully bought into the belief system, but uh, that was my first like little nudge of, okay, that's a little weird, (laughs) you know? But um, but at the same time, it was really uh, going back to you. It's really cool that that minister was was looking out for your brother, even though he received yeah. hate and stuff. It sounds like he was a good guy and kind yeah. of going against what the um, what what the religion was would it, would. Have you liked. can
1: imagine how how much courage it took for him to go out and talk to my mother about and try to say to her, you know, he's. He's, he's having some real mental issues right now. You need, I think what happened was he had, on his way out of church, somebody had greeted him and he had gone on a rant, you know, he had gotten really angry. He was very angry and uh, he was manic. He was manic.
0: Yeah, it's, it makes sense. Was there, a, was there a point when you were like, um, I, I'm not born again, born again anymore? Did, did, did that happen?
1: You know, I, I think what happened was as I, I took what I thought were the very positive uh, um, elements of the faith, you know, and most of the teachings of Jesus were really compassion and caring and, and um, um, you know, to caring for the downtrodden. Those, those are wonderful values, and I've always kept those with me, but um, I, you know, I don't call myself a born-again Christian anymore. Um, I don't have, it's, you know, a born-again Christian, and I have family who are born-again Christians, and they're wonderful. I love them, relatives and cousins. uh, They're wonderful people, but for me, it was, it's such a rigid black and white view, you know, you're either born again or you're not, and the world, uh, I know my therapist said um, to me, you know, that um, I I and I was unprepared for the complexity of the of the of the modern of the contemporary world. That my upbringing didn't make me ready to understand that life is many shades of gray, and that you can't be totally right or totally wrong. And that rigidity is what I had 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 really um, uh, what caused me to think that way about everything. Everything I was very rigid about things. And I think that was the worst. Um, the one characteristic that was most difficult for me to deal with was trying to understand life through a prism rather than that black and white um, way of looking at things.
0: Oh, and the in the and the grays are so great.
1: Yes. The, um, yes.
0: I have even had Jehovah's Witnesses get mad at me for for showing the positive of what, is, what of growing up a Jehovah's Witness and showing the things that, you know, and the, mm-hmm. and people will rage. No, it's all bad. It's all bad. And it's like, no, it's not all bad. No, right. because they, Like even, even, you know, I look at, I look at Jesus and the philosophy of Jesus. And I'm like, this guy's rad.
1: You know? yeah. He, yeah. He's a cool definitely. dude. Yeah. Yes,
0: yeah, definitely. I, you know, I don't believe, I don't believe he's in heaven right now, but I do believe that this is important. You know, it's, it's part mm. of, it's part of um the sacred texts that, kind of we can come back to thing,
1: I guess mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I don't know I think I'm grappling with it right now my spirituality at this very moment
1: <laughs> yeah um, you know um, we're actually leaving for Minnesota tomorrow morning I, I, I have to get a new scheduler we have a flight out of Hartford at five forty in the morning and we're an hour away <laughs> so I have to get a new scheduler that would be me that did that um, oh. I don't know how I did it But we're going back to Minnesota and uh, right where I grew up. And uh, we'll be staying in the farmhouse that I grew up in uh, with my younger brother who's farming it. He's, you know, my great grandfather homesteaded it, my grandfather farmed it, my father farmed it, and then my younger brother farms it. and uh, so I'll be, I'll be seeing many of my family. We're having, they're having a book reading in their little town of 700, which is really great. Um, oh my God.
0: And, uh, yeah, I, okay, go ahead. But I want to hear about how amazing that, that. okay, keep going. That's, I just got excited <laughs> and, for you. And,
1: uh, you know, I love my cousins and many of them are evangelicals, but they're not, you know, even the fundamental. I don't think they're, they are nearly as fundamentalist as they used to be. So they're a loving kind of evangelical and they're caring and, you know, they do an amazing amount of gifting to um, people, you know, yeah. helping uh, people. So, uh, so they're good people anyway. Uh, and I, I'm so excited to see them. So you had something you wanted to say?
0: No, it's just you're you're doing your debut reading in your hometown. Wait, what's it? It's it's like it's like coming back and going, you know, hey, everyone who thought I couldn't make it, check this out, you know. <laughs> just and probably that's me and my uh, issues where when you know when I had a book come out and I was like, you thought I couldn't do this? Check it out. It, it was it, there was a little more. Uh, yeah, I'm like maybe I should have had more joy instead of. <laughs>
1: Well, actually, um, I'm just sort of um, overwhelmed by the fact my sister um, has planned, they have having it in the Kirkhoven Civic Center, which is a a gathering place for things and um, so she's she's done a really she's been the promoter, you know, I told her, you know, she should be my publicist, and she put ads in the local weekly and then in the regional paper and she's personal by word of mouth to cousins and friends and classmates. And actually it's, uh, where I grew up is 120 miles west of Minneapolis. And I put, I, I told them on Facebook uh, about this book reading in in Minnesota. And I have friends who are driving out from Minneapolis uh, to go to the Kirkhoven Civic Center for this book reading. Now I think that they're just getting a kick out of it, you know, but it's, it's really wonderful. It's gonna be such fun.
0: What's the date on the reading?
1: Uh, Saturday, day after tomorrow.
0: Oh, okay. Because this will this will air after that. I was hoping it would be a little further, because yeah. then we can announce it, <laughs> and then and then the two listeners I have in Western Minnesota will go. <laughs>
1: uh, well, maybe they'll be there. Yes.
0: Yeah. No, right. I think
1: it'll be, it'll, I've had a couple readings here and. Um, and uh, you know, and uh, in, in, you know, some interviews. But the reading, the readings are fun because then you can take questions from the people who are listening, and I, I, I really like that. It's fun. And you know, I think I don't know if the Kirkovan Civic Center has ever had a book signing uh, event. Uh, maybe they have. Uh, I, I don't know, but it will be fun to see how it comes out. They're serving coffee and cookies and Rice Krispie bars.
0: So no booze at that
1: one. Are you kidding? They're still <laughs> teetotalers. Most, uh, at least my relatives are pretty much yeah. still teetotalers. Yeah,
0: no, that all that, a lot of the book reading events I go to, it's 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 all about the wine and like, and I, yeah. and, I and I tell my students, I'm like, well, Remember me when your book is released, so I can have some free wine and free. <laughs>
1: Yes. Well, the book readings here do include wine, but not in Kirkcombe Minnesota.
0: I don't know what it is about book readings and wine. Like even there, you know, sometimes I'll take a month off of drinking. And so I'll just, you know, they'll have sparkling water there and it's great, but I love to know that wine is available if I want it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's it's kind of important. (laughs) It's part of the game. Yes.
1: And a glass of wine is always good.
0: Yeah. So what, so you're working on your second book. What is that about?
1: Well, you or know, do you I'm really not, not. Talk
0: about it. Maybe it's. I'm too.
1: not quite ready to talk about okay. it yet. It's still, it's still, um, it's. You know, I'm, I'm about halfway through, but I have yet to figure out. You know exactly how I'm going to develop it. So it's just a little too soon to talk about it.
0: Can we find out if it's fiction or nonfiction?
1: It's nonfiction.
0: Okay. Cool. Fun. <laughs> it's. Um... Oh, go ahead. No, uh,
1: fiction. Fiction. I am not ready to tackle fiction. It's like everything that's available. I want to write where I'm limited by, um, you know. I, I want the constraints of what's really happened and happening, and uh, so I like to have those constraints, and then I can process it. And obviously, it's it's going to be a, a continuation of a memoir, but it's more about contemporary, my contemporary. Um, life which i'm not ready to really talk about yet and uh but i like that uh because it puts some boundaries on what i'm what i can t- tell and what i can say and when i wrote my book half of a Whole, i worked very hard to get the day de- get the get the details right to um make sure that they were authentic and uh and I like that. It's a kind of a dis- forces of discipline on you. And then, and then of course, um, processing it, um, processing what happened and what does it mean and uh, how does it play out? So I, I, that's what I love.
0: What, what, I, what I'm excited about is the possibility that there might be a sentence about being on a podcast called Drinks with Tony. <laughs>
1: Well, I'll try to slip that in. Oh, if, oh my God. Yes.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll feel like I've made it. If, I, if I'm just casually reading a book and then
1: I'm like, wait a second, that's me. <laughs> I'll try to slip it in. Yeah. Is Did, chapter, I think I'm on chapter 35. So, you know, maybe chapter 36.
0: Okay, cool. Cool. I'll be looking for it. With um, now putting the ads in the paper, are you making sure to get all your clippings, all your physical clippings of the newspapers and everything?
1: Uh, I'm trying to, yeah, Yeah, I'm trying to, yeah. Um, I've been printing out. So a lot of stuff is still digital, you know, people, yeah. And people will read the book. Um, They're starting, you know, it's came out on the eighth. So they're starting to finish the book and I get these wonderful emails from people and I print them out and put them all in a folder. They're wonderful. That's great. Um, Yeah. And I got a Kirkus review a couple days ago. That was fabulous. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, I printed that out and uh, and you know print out all those things. So I'm I'm trying to keep everything, uh, you know, that uh, comes out uh, from friends or reviews or whatever.
0: Now, did you did Kirkus give you a star? Because I know those are hard to get.
1: Um, they they just wrote a I don't I didn't there wasn't any star on it. Uh, Uh They just wrote a very nice review.
0: Cool. No, I, or I don't know if, it, maybe that's Publishers Weekly that uh, that does not Publishers Weekly. I forget all, I, I okay. sometimes I remember and sometimes I forget. And I, and I think that's, uh, you know, cause I'm of colonoscopy age.
1: <laughs> I, well, I, I, you know, don't ask me anything where I have to drag a data point out of my mind because I'll remember it at two in the morning but I won't remember it right now. <laughs> It's there, it just takes longer to find it.
0: Yeah, oh, some of some of my, I have more revelations about my friend's books at three in the morning than I do about mine, where I'm just like, oh my God, what if they did this, this, and this? And I have to write it down. And they're like, why are you thinking about my book at three in the morning? And I'm like, I got <laughs> nothing going on, you don't
1: understand. <laughs> well, at three in the morning, everything is critical. Everything is important, you know? Um, and I was, somebody was telling me that's because all your normal defenses are down, you know? So the same thing that's so important at three in the morning, you get up in the morning, you say, now, why did I lay awake for an hour thinking about that when you could take care of it in, you know, 10 minutes. And, uh, but in the middle of the night, it seems so major.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Probably because we're close to those waves of like sleeping and our subconscious mm-hmm. is just kind mm-hmm. of tickling us. Yeah. It's like yeah. Yeah. We're getting, we're getting close to What's really inside us, right? Yeah. Don't they call the subconscious like a glacier, like a glacier underneath the water, and what we are is just a little bit of the top.
1: True. True. Yes. Yes. So and then,
0: my I, I I'm, congratulations and, and and also on um getting the emails. Isn't it fantastic to have people have strangers read your work and like yes actually get affected.
1: Yes. Yes. It's wonderful. I know you, I know you had a book out a couple of years ago, right?
0: Uh, more than a couple of years ago, but I remember that. Well, no, it came out 10 years ago, but the, the, the film version came out a couple of years ago. So.
1: Well, that's pretty, that's pretty snazzy to have a film version.
0: Uh, yeah, it sounds snazzy, but I, I just feel like I've done everything wrong through the, well, not everything wrong, but I look back and I'm like, oh, I could have done that better. I could have done that better. If only <laughs> I did that. But that just means I got to work on um, getting into the book mm. and film
1: out there. Or maybe it means, or maybe it means you're listening too much to your self-critic.
0: <gasps> oh, yes. How do you, now, how do you stop listening to your self-critic? What do you do?
1: Um, You know, when I was writing my book, the biggest thing that worried me was feeling a feeling of disloyalty. I was being disloyal to my family, I was disloyal to my mother, my brother, neither. I could never have published the book with either of them alive because they would have, you know, that would have been the, the total end of any relationship. So I felt disloyal when I presented them as humans, humans, you know, with all the failings we all have and the good points and the bad points. But I felt I felt uh, uh, disloyal by describing the things that uh, you know that they m- might have maybe done differently had they thought differently about it. So I I would have to sort of brush that critic off my shoulder and say okay uh, I'm going to write this and when I'm done writing it I'll think about that but right now I'm going to write and I just start writing and once I started writing I'd forget about that you know I'd I'd just get involved in the text I was writing and then I'd forget about that critic but I still have moments where I say you know did I did I violate my family especially now when I'm going back to Minnesota but uh, some of my cousins have read the book and um and they have been very gracious and um, very interested in it. Most of them said we had no idea any of this was going on.
0: Oh, wow. How cool is that? It, Go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah, but but it wasn't obvious. You know, My when my brother was in high school, you know, he had a few ticks and, and shrugs. And um, he, he, I I think looking back, he suffered from depression because, you know, my mother couldn't get him up to go to school, catch the bus, you know, practically have to drag him out of bed. My dad was furious at him because he didn't want to work in the fields. Um, So looking back, Um, I can see maybe those those were signs of depression but at the time he seemed fine you know Um, didn't didn't really notice anything so my cousins had no experience of him um, of him in the manner in which you know it played out and in fact they had very little experience of him when he was manic I don't think any of them saw him in a manic state so it's a it's it's a my brother that they didn't really see and didn't know an aspect of him.
0: And it's kind of, it's kind of beautiful to have a crafted story where they can, they can read something that you've worked, that you've worked hard on, and they can go and they can get it. They can go, Oh, that's what was going on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's fun to have them read it. And and of course they're, they're right in it because I'm describing the same life they were living in the farm and, you know, all the things that were, you know, we did on the farm and in the one-room country school, we went to a one-room country school for six years, which 20 students in sixth grade started out, eight grades of 20 students, total students, wow. one teacher. Can you imagine teaching 20 kids? Um, some grades had one, some grades had three, you know, and you had, you, a teacher, had to teach all those students for six years, you know, for the over, most of them stayed about one or, or two years. And then they'd leave, and mostly they got very young teachers who uh who would take the low pay
0: <laughs> oh, and
1: okay. uh, yeah, and For yet we experience. got a, yeah, and yet we got a good education
0: yeah i bet that i' can't, I can't even fathom yeah because I was in I was just in a suburban school where it was just like sixteen hundred people, and yeah. you know teachers were just but, like yeah.
1: Well, if you think about it, you learn you learn what you learn while the teacher's teaching the older kids you learn what they're learning because you're right in that one room then you learn it when you learn it and then you help the younger students and so you learn it a third time you know so you you have all this reinforcement and I think that's part of the reason why uh, we ended up um, uh, knowing you know really having a good ed- education in the basics.
0: Oh and that's so fantastic because it also helps you to learn how to mentor even when you're young.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I used to go and sit and several of us would go and sit, squeeze into the desks with the first graders and help them, you know, fill out their workbooks. It was all workbooks back then. And uh, and then we'd sit in the back of the room with flashcards and help them learn their multiplication tables. And, um, you know, we found important. We got to help. Yeah,
0: oh, that, That's. All right. I, I think the whole education system could do a whole restructure on that. And that would probably bring everybody up a bunch of notches.
1: Yeah, I think call you're right. It,
0: we'll call it the farm school, the farm, the farm school style.
1: <laughs> Everyone that went to a one-room school that I know loved it. They loved that one. Their one-room schools, and uh, we, um, we, um, uh, we, we pumped our own water. We had a well with well water. We had two outhouses out back. One in one for the boys. One for the girls. Um, we. We dusted the erasers. I guess everybody does that. But you know, we were um, we were a little entity there, a community, and it was wonderful. I, now the the outhouses in Minnesota in the winter, you know, ten degrees <laughs> below zero, were not exactly a blessing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: if you if you urinate, does it freeze at that temperature?
1: No. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure when it lands, it probably does instantly.
0: Okay. But it's not, okay. That's something I, I think eat. what
1: we look. Yeah. I think we all learned really good bladder control.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, with that. Thank you so much, Marilyn. It's been fun having you on the show.
1: Okay. And look for, look for your name in chapter 37. Marilyn Peterson
0: house on drinks with Tony. Check out her new book, half of the whole next week on the show. We have Tess Garrettson discussing her new novel, Choose Me. Have a great weekend. Please don't start any fires for 4th of July, you arsonist. Save it for the rainy season, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. You are on your radio dial at 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.